1: and follow BSL on Twitter. On, Twitter. on Twitter. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spen, joined by my co host Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan. We're also joined by a special guest today in uh, Connor Newcomb, who I'll introduce in a moment. But first, a reminder that On The Verge is brought to you by Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business. It was established in 1959, and it's located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland of Carroll County. For all your flooring needs, think Mercer. Connor is the host of the Locked On Orioles podcast. Uh, He's been kind enough to have Bob, Nick, and I on in the past, and we've always enjoyed our visits there, and I think he generally runs one of the better Orioles-centric Twitter accounts out there. Uh, And that's at Locked On Orioles, correct, Connor? Yeah, that is. All right, so... We're happy to have you on. So, Connor, I'll, I'll just start off. Uh, how you doing? This has been an unusual off season for a baseball podcast.
0: Yeah, it has. Uh, well, it it had been slow, and then of course this week came, and the Orioles decided to uh, do everything in one week, which uh, is nice for for one thing for breaking news pods, and uh, it lets me kind of stack up later uh, other episodes that I've talked about. But uh, you know, it's, I've I've had all you guys on as well. Uh, because uh, I think I've got the three foremost experts on, uh, if I want to talk about, you know, basically the guys behind Adley, Grayson, and DL in the system, uh, which is why I've had have you, you all on the pod multiple times.
1: Well, we're definitely happy to have you here. And on that note, we'll get into the one of the big news stories of the week. I mean, actually, I have several big stories to get to, but uh, one of the big news stories of the week is that Alex Cobb is no longer an Oriole. Uh, they completed a trade last night that was officially announced late Tuesday night, but then widely reported the day before as being in the works, Alex Cobb sent to the Angels in exchange for prospect Jemai Jones. Uh, Cobb was entering the final year of his four-year, $57 million contract, uh, struggled with injuries, particularly in 2019, but then was generally effective last year um, in a healthy 2020. He had been expected to be the number two starter behind John Means, but his departure now leaves an additional rotation spot open they do get back an intriguing prospect though in jones a former second round pick who mlb pipeline had ranked seventh uh prior to the trade and nick um i found this amusing you tweeted this on monday i believe angels twitter was not happy with this trade were they no it's fun
2: reading a lot of the angels responses just because i mean for the Angels, like you've got Mike Trout, you've got this once in a generation talent, uh, and you've got a decent lineup behind him. And we know the deal is they don't have any pitching every year. It's pitching, and they get a new general manager in, and they add Jose Quintana, who you know, okay, low risk signing, but that's the guy you stashed the back into your bullpen. And then you got Alex Cobb, who I mean, as Orioles fans, we know him pretty well. That I mean, he's he had a better year in 2020 for sure, uh, but you know, the injuries have kind of taking a toll on him at this point in his career, and I don't really know how much is left in the tank, and Alex Cobb definitely isn't going to take you to a World Series, so have fun in L.A., I guess. But when you look at L.A., though, when you see what Dylan Bundy did last year, I guess maybe there is a little bit of a pause for concern there, but I think Cobb's a little different there.
3: Yeah, I'm not too worried about losing Cobb. I mean, his splitter seemed to be working good again last year, but if you look at his metrics on baseball, Savant, other than that, it was not too pretty, so... To be able to get anything back for him and the fact that the team was willing to eat two-thirds of his contract to essentially buy a prospect, uh, that's a good sign for me, especially when there's all the news going around about deferring arbitration payments and all that kind of stuff. So, To me, it shows that the Orioles are not completely destitute and are willing to do what it takes to uh, improve the team.
1: Connor, I know you explored the salary angle of the Cobb trade on a show earlier this week. There's been a lot of discussion about this, I know, on the Baltimore Sports and Life board, but then on some other Orioles sites as well. Would you consider the Cobb trade a salary dump?
0: I would say, yeah. I mean, it's it's nice to get Jemai Jones back. I think, honestly, even when the trade broke, because, you know, we knew he was going to LA before uh, we even knew that, uh, you know, they were getting anyone back. And, you know, that makes it a little less feeling like a salary dump. But, uh, I mean, to be honest, you know, they're 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 paying ten million just to get rid of five million, essentially, and 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 that's kind of what it comes down to.
1: So, aside from that, though, what was your overall impression of the trade, both from the Angels' perspective and the Orioles'?
0: I mean, for the O's, you know, it 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 felt like watching Alex Cobb. I mean, you guys kind of hit on it. His splitter is back, which is nice. The rest of his pitches are not. And I mean those hard hit percentages. I mean, my goodness. I mean, honestly, you know, the Orioles' defense had some some rough stretches last year, but the one pitcher they helped out was Alex Cobb. I mean, his ERA should have been higher than it was, um, and some of his outings should have been worse than they were. Um, and so, to be honest, and I know they paid ten of the fifteen million, but to get anything back, and and I've heard a lot of varying takes on jamai jones and what he can be um but they got a guy who can play second base in the big leagues this year and a guy who's only 23 um and for the last year of Cobb, where you know he was never going to really help you win i'll i'll take it it's not like i'm jumping for joy but i'll take that deal
1: Yeah, so I, I tried to break down Jones in a piece on Monday right after the trade had been reported but wasn't finalized yet, and it's a complicated case because the sense is that, you know, you look at his 2019 numbers at A, they're not that impressive, but um, Nick, you have actually talked about this a little bit, that the Angels, I guess, had tweaked his swing um, to not very good results that year, and then there has also been some suggestions, and I noted this in my story. Um, that his batting hour zone balls in play, 288, was not very good. Um, Eric Longenhagen had noted last year, actually, that the batted ball data for Jones at double-A was still pretty positive. So it feels to me like this is not – he's not a sore thing. I mean, if he were a sore thing, the Angels would not have included him in this deal. But it does feel like there's a little bit more to the bat than what the stats suggest. Yeah, and I mean, you're talking
2: about second base this year for the Orioles he's jones is probably going to start the year in triple a uh you know you've got yulmer sanchez right now to go at second base who's gold glove caliber glove out there he's someone i know the offense is a major question mark but I can actually bring up that, that offense later on. Maybe we talk about third base and Rio Ruiz. But yeah, Jones, I mean, I like the reports. I, like Connor said, it's not like a, a blowout trade. It's not somebody that's like, oh my God, it's Jemai Jones. Like, this is an amazing prospect. We totally fleece the Angels. Uh, but it is somebody who's intriguing. And, and I did like all the reports kind of out there when you're researching them now about the, the Angels have tried to swing. And, and I think you had Taylor Blake Wardle in your podcast today, uh, Connor, who mentioned they. They changed his swing probably seven or eight different times. Uh, and it seemed like from reading, I think it was Baseball America that said, actually, when he was at the alternate site and he went back to his old swing, the home runs came and he had like seven home runs at the alternate site. Uh, so that's a good sign. I mean, it's we talked about in our last episode, we did like the rest of the top 30, the guys outside of the top 30 uh, that just missed our list. Um, we There's a lot of guys that still raise the floor. And I think Jemiah Jones is one of those guys who raises the, the talent floor of the organization. And so if you're going to let, I didn't think Alex Cobb was tradable. I thought if anything, he was going to provide innings in a season when you're going from 60 to 162 games, you're going to need pitching. You're going to need a lot of pitching depth. And I thought at least Cobb could provide that. But if you're going to get a guy in Jones who could fill in at second base later on this year, yeah, it's a win.
3: Yeah, his swing changes kind of remind me of what Ryan McKenna was going through a year or two ago when he went to Bowie in double-A. Um, trying to get more of that home run swing and it just did not work out for him. And it seems like the same thing for Jones. And then he's going back to what got him there in the first place. But, uh, I like, the, I like the return. I mean, he's number 16 on baseball America for the Orioles. Now 19 on MLB, MLB pipeline. I have him 18 on my personal top 30, which is kind of funny since he was all the way up at seven for the angels. But, um, yeah, he's a guy that can come in, compete for second base, at least maybe a utility spot. Maybe he can beat out Pat Vileka, the almighty, uh, for second base or you know backup infielder, someone that could play center field in a pinch since he has some experience there. So yeah, you're not getting back a stud, but you're getting back a guy who's major league ready right now and he can contribute to the team in 2021.
1: Yeah, well said. I, I think that he's someone you could look at, even if he does start the year at Norfolk, which is what my guess is where he's going to begin the year. Um, we could see him up later in the year because of that ability for him to play second base in the outfield. The fact that Sanchez can slide over to the third base if Rio Ruiz does not seize a job early on. Um, and he's got you know, a little bit more raw athleticism than Ryland Bannon does, where you're not going to put someone like Bannon in the outfield um, you could feel comfortable putting Jones out there. So I think that does differentiate the two a little bit. And though I'm very high on Taron Vavra, I think it would be a stretch at this point to count on him being in the major leagues um, in 2021, at least for a substantial period of time. So I think there is actually a need for Jones. That and um, so some of the concerns, I guess, surrounding Richie Martin's health, um, you know, make raise the need for another middle infielder.
2: Yeah, I think one name I'm going to throw out there that just keeps getting beaten down this list over and over again, and I, and I know you know he's not going to be a future starting shortstop in Major League Baseball, but Mason McCoy, man, the, the poor guy, doesn't get invited to alternate site or, or instructs, and now they're bringing in more shortstops and, and guys to take some of his playing time. Richie Martin breaks his hand again, and he's still probably on the outside looking in, but someone give Mason McCoy a chance.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um he might see some time. It's going to have to be this year, I feel like, before uh, the barrage of middle infield prospects kind of just pass him by completely, but hopefully he gets his shot. You also got Ramon Urias in there, and not too much else. <laughs> you,
0: you mentioned McCoy. It's like a death by a thousand cuts. Every shortstop they draft, every infielder they bring in, it just hits him and hits him and hits him. <laughs> yeah. so, that, someday,
1: that's something about. That's something we talked about a lot when we were putting together our top thirty. Was just this influx of middle infielders that, you know, guys like Mason McCoy, Caden Grenier, and I think even Adam Hall to a lesser extent, now feel overshadowed. Yeah, for sure. So now, as I mentioned earlier, Alex Cobb is out. Jamai Jones is in. Uh, look for Jones somewhere either in Triple A or the major leagues next year. But the departure of Cobb leads into really the next big topic on this show, which is some of the spring training battles that we could see when uh, camp begins, and it's still on track to begin in about two weeks. Um, At this point, there are, it looks like, two starting rotation jobs up for grabs. Now it's the departure of Cobb. The Orioles appear to have made uh, moves and bringing in someone who at one point looked like he was on track to be a first ballot Hall of Famer and Wade LeBlanc. Uh, he's back in Baltimore now. And they also signed Felix Hernandez. Um, but uh, LeBlanc returns uh, on a minor league deal. Felix Hernandez, who was going to pitch in Atlanta last year, but then opted out because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, has signed a minor league deal with the Orioles and reported by John Heyman tonight that he would make $1 million if he does uh, earn a roster spot. So, Connor... W- what are your thoughts on bringing in Hernandez and LeBlanc, I guess, to experiment to see if either one or both of them land in the rotation?
0: Well, I mean, tonight, seeing the Felix news, I mean, my, my first reaction was just like, you know, I, I felt like I was back in, in 2010, 2011. I, I just let myself do that for like 90 seconds, just like Felix Hernandez is pitching, might be pitching for the Orioles, Um, and, and you know, thought back to his Cy Young season. Um and his perfect game in 2012, um, and then of course, if you think anything past that, you obviously get you know shot back into reality, which is, I mean, I, I 2019 was bad. I had actually forgotten how bad 2018 also was for King Felix. Uh, for some reason in my mind, I thought he was around a a four four and a half ERA pitcher up until 2019. That was not the case. He was he was uh, struggling before then, and uh, you know it's. On one side, I guess, you know, a good sign that the Braves felt good enough to at least take a chance on him. A team that was, you know, going to win a division thought he might have a shot to make their roster um, last year. And, And of course, as you said, he opted out and didn't pitch. But the crazy thing about King Felix is, you know, he was pitching at a high level at age 19 in the big leagues. So, you know, it feels like he's been around forever. He's only 34. So, you know, not saying he will turn it around. But there's definitely still time for him to at least get back to, I mean, it it stinks that this is what we're saying about him at this point, but at least get back to a major league average pitcher uh, that the Orioles can use to eat innings in their rotation. And for LeBlanc, I mean, you know, he was just like the worst version of Tommy Malone. And obviously we didn't see a lot of him because of the injury uh, last year. And, And the ERA was eight. It was like two good starts, two average starts, and two horrendous starts, and and that's what kind of what got him to to that number. I don't know how much LeBlanc pitches. I think just the hope in me is that Felix sees more innings. But you know, the, you could see both of them. I feel like on the opening day roster, but they needed they didn't have any veteran starting pitchers after trading Cobb. So at the very least, get a little leadership in there uh, in spring training.
3: Yeah, got to love him. The king Feel exciting. If nothing else, it'll be fun uh, this month, next month, just to see him in an Orioles spring training uniform, at least. That'll be cool. But, you know, by all reports, last spring training, I feel like you heard some positive things. He had a chance to make the Braves' uh, opening day roster. And who knows, maybe a year off completely from pitching any high volume. Maybe he can add a mile per hour or two on his fastball and maybe, you know, get closer to average, like Connor said. Uh, LeBlanc. I'm, I'd am i rather have Joey from Friends, that a different LeBlanc, but uh, I'm hoping he's just like a, a body in camp, you know, just some competitiveness uh, for spring training. I really would hate to see him make the opening day roster, especially when we got so much depth at AAA when it comes to pitching. But, you know, it never hurts to sign someone to a minor league deal. You know, worst thing that happens is there's really no worse thing that could happen.
2: Yeah, look. His age, looking him up now, his rookie year, I was a junior in high school, and now I'm, like, approaching my mid-30s with a kid, and that's unbelievable. And like you said, he's only 34 years old. Um, he's only a year older than me, and it feels like he's, like, 40. Um, But, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It is. It was that moment of, oh, my God, King Felix, Baltimore Orioles, this is amazing. And then you see all the tweets, like, is eight years too late? This is 10 years too late, which, sure, it is. But, you know, it's it's somebody new. It's somebody interesting. To come in and battle i mean i'd rather see guys like a felix hernandez come in and try to take a spot uh or at least compete for a long relief roll or fifth spot in the rotation than you know the the chandler shepherds and Ty blocks that the orioles have been bringing in um this is definitely a lot more interesting i think uh and if you hit something i mean it, orioles and pitching has always been kind of this nightmare scenario but you know when you look at what's going down in the farm system and when you look at what they were do able to do with tommy malone If you can turn Tommy Malone into production, he was good when he pitched. Like I actually enjoyed watching Tommy Malone pitch for the Orioles, and then they got actual other human beings back for him. Like that's that. I'm obviously that could be like a a one-time thing there, but uh, I'm willing to take the risk on a guy like Felix Hernandez with that track record.
1: It's fun. I'll throw this out just in general to uh, the group, so anyone can really come in and answer this. Do you think that because of Hernandez's track record, putting aside for a moment that the last four seasons or so have not been very good, do you think that because of his experience, his track record, and as I said at one point he looked like he was on a trajectory to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, do you think that that gives him an edge in, say, to push situation to decide who the number four and number five starter is going to be? Do you go to Hernandez because you hope you just catch lightning in the bottle and you feel better than, say, Tom Esselman or Wade LeBlanc being the pitcher that outperforms expectations?
3: Maybe a little bit. Maybe a very, very little bit, but I don't know. I mean, over Wade LeBlanc, sure. <laughs> yeah, I would do it. But uh, even Tom Esselman, he had his moments last year. I don't know. I just hope it doesn't even come to down, down to that and he at least definitively proves he's better than those types of guys.
2: Yeah. You got to compare him to. I think the Orioles really like uh, Jorge Lopez. Um, so I think they're going to give him an opportunity. Bringing Eschelman back, I think that speaks volumes. Uh, and he was much improved last year. Um, so yeah, I think he's definitely got to earn his job. It's not just going to be like, here's King Felix. It's not like the Orioles are trying to sell tickets right now. So I mean, that's not going to help. So it's, he's definitely going to have to earn a spot. But we'll see what happens when spring training gets around. Maybe. if, Like I said last episode, I don't apparently we're not gonna be able to watch spring training on massing so we'll, we'll see how much we actually get to watch him
0: yeah i mean you bring in king felix last year he's probably just handed a rotation spot um this year you know as you said the orioles definitely do like jorge lopez um and and eshelman's back um and you know like there's going to be the bruce zimmermans of the world trying to compete for that spot too and and you know <laughs> they might be that a guy like that might be hungrier than King Felix to get that spot at, at this point. You never know. And and so, but I, I kind of agree with Bob. My hope is that, you know, with Felix's experience, he's got a Cy young, he's a multiple all-star, he's thrown a perfect game. He's been around that. It shouldn't be incredibly difficult for him to beat out. If it comes down to him and Wade LeBlanc and Tom Eshelman.
3: Or even uh Cesar Valdez, who knows? He had a good uh, start that's the
1: other well, day. That's the closing, yeah. <laughs> now, another thing that I think the implication, and because we're kind of a prospect, so I did want to bring this up, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. To me, the, now that you have brought in LeBlanc and King Felix, probably means that we see Bruce Zimmerman start the year back at Norfolk, whereas just a week ago he looked like he could contend for a number five spot. My gut feeling is that they're going to put him in the rotation at Norfolk to stretch him out rather than have him in the bullpen. But do either one of you feel like it could be different than that? I don't think so. I, I think when you're looking at
2: this now, personally, as much as I think Zimmerman's kind of this, I think Eric Long and Hagen called him the fully baked prospect, Which, yeah, I mean, how much more development are you going to get out of him? I don't think not much. At this point it's sink or swim for zimmerman i want to see him in the rotation getting to start every five six days but you look at jorge lopez i don't think has options left um and you look at Soroller and tyler wells if one just one of them makes a roster uh you know they're going to get innings um maybe not in the starting rotation but i think with zimmerman you probably he's got the options you can stash him away in triple a and if anything, like AAA, the Norfolk roster is probably going to be pretty stacked this year. I mean, he's not going to be pitching up there with guys like, you know, Johnny Giovatella and Zach Vinci and Chris Bostic behind him. Like, he's going to have a, a legit roster behind him. So that's a lot better a situation for these guys. Um, and he's going to be pitching with the Zach Lothers and Michael Bauman. So you know, it would be fun to maybe watch these guys really push each other uh, down there in AAA Norfolk and then round you know, trading block uh, into the season see some of these guys come up and see what this uh, development does for them. But as much as I want to see Zimmerman in the rotation, I, I think he's going to be the guy when it all shakes out that gets pushed down to AAA, at least to start the year.
3: Yeah, I agree with Nick. I think he's either going to start in AAA's rotation or maybe outside shot of making the bullpen for the Orioles with a, you know, eye on replacing the Lopez's or King Felix's of the world a little bit down the line. But You know, if he really impresses in spring training again this year like he did last year, who knows? You know, anything is possible with the Baltimore
1: Orioles. Any thoughts, Connor?
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with that. I mean, he's, you know, especially with a guy, you know, some veterans in there, and and they have options to to keep Bruce at at AAA. You know, they'd, they'd probably want him to start there over be a reliever in the majors if it comes down to that. Um I just got to say the Johnny Giovatella name drop just made me smile right there. That was that was
2: just a fantastic <laughs> pool of a AAA uh, Orioles player. I, I I have not missed a Norfolk Tides game in three years. If if that uh, <laughs> my Tides knowledge is unmatched, I, I will gladly say that.
3: That is like the Vladimir Guerrero on the Orioles of the Norfolk tide. That was pretty cool. <laughs> so we're
1: keeping in theme with some of the roster positions that we're gonna be watching in camp. Uh we're gonna turn to position players now. And I know Bob has a question about uh third base, specifically Rio Ruiz.
3: Oh yeah, I was wondering if you think that Rio Ruiz uh is gonna make it through the season on the Orioles roster.
0: <sighs> uh, that is quite a good question because if you Pose that question pre 2020 season. I say, of course, Rio Ruiz will be through. You know, the entire 2020 season, and then we saw him start hot, and then just kind of forget how to play third base defensively at times. I mean, that was one of the weirder things, uh, or at least one of the more surprising things that happened to the Orioles. You know, I'm not expecting Rio Ruiz to be the starting third baseman down the road for the Orioles, but like, he looked pretty serviceable, and then they're just it was like a 20 game stretch last year where he couldn't field he couldn't throw and the bat wasn't good enough to make me feel like you know all right it's it's okay if that's happening at third and you know it was bad when you know we had seen Renato Nunez play third in the same season and we still thought Ruiz was was playing poorly and you know I don't know if Bannon's going to hit a ceiling where he's an everyday third baseman and you know I don't know if Yomer Sanchez takes over that spot and you know I think the best bat in that group is somehow still Pat Vileka even though I don't want to see him and you know Vileka's bat I mean it might be the best of of all those guys in the infield and and you know Jemai Jones is is in that camp too and you know you you look at these guys and and Ruiz just not kind of seizing that job And, you know, maybe there's a platoon for him potentially, but, you know, I think by June or July, unless he really gets hot and, and, you know, turns it on, because of all those guys, you know, he was, you know, the most of a prospect, I think at some point, at least with Atlanta, but unless he really seizes it by, you know, June, July, I don't think it's going to be his job anymore. and, And I don't think he'll be an Oriole by the end of the season.
3: I definitely wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean... He showed flashes last year, for sure, especially in the beginning of the year, but if he doesn't come out in this spring training and really show that he's got that new swing down pat again and starting over and just comes out of the gate hot, then I think he might not even make the team, let alone make it through the year.
2: Yeah, Ruiz is interesting. He's a guy that is he's really frustrating me. You mentioned the defense, and it's just bobble after bobble, uh, and I was looking up earlier the, the zips projections for this year and take these for what you will, but Rio Ruiz is projected the 236 average, a 301 on base percentage, and an 82 WRC plus. And Yomer Sanchez, they have projected at a 255 average, a 320 on base, and uh 83 WRC plus. So I mean about the same, a little bit better on base percentage. But the glove, Sanchez is a gold glove second baseman. Um, I'm going to be honest and say I don't know how well that translates over to third base. I've never seen him play third base. never seen him play second base either, to be totally honest. But I think, you know, he seems to be like he's a Michael Elias guy, and there isn't really anyone knocking on the door at third base. You've got Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg. If they move off shortstop and move over to third base, they're still a couple years away. Kobe Mayo's an 18-year-old kid. He's many years away. So... I could see Ruiz sticking around, but I mean, when you've got Jones coming up, like you mentioned, and you've got Bannon, who I think is solid at third base. I don't trust his arm uh, all the way at third base, but I think he's a pretty solid second baseman. It's not going to hurt you uh, too much. So I think eventually Ruiz is going to find his way out when Bannon and Jones are finally pushing for playing time.
1: Yeah, I I think that I give Ruiz the first half of the year to really prove himself to at least make it through to the end of 2021. He's always been an enigma to me because it seems like he can have these seven to 10 game stretches where he looks really capable at third base. And while the bat, you know, I've never been sold on his bat. It seems like he at least has a little bit more power potential than what his stats suggest. And that that could eventually play well at tandem yards. The problem is though that once you get past those seven to 10 games, he just hits a wall. And it feels like both offense and defense will start to see the performance drop. Um, over a 60-game season, I think that was fine. I think the Orioles were willing to work with that and willing to let him develop. And I think they're still going to be giving him some development time. But I don't know that it's going to last past the All-Star break. And I think at that point, if you have Jamai Jones, Rylan Bannon, Yomer Sanchez, um and I know I said earlier there would be a stretch to see him in the majors this year, but if he's really, really hitting in the minors, if Taron Baver is in that mix, maybe even Mason McCoy, uh, you're going to have to start finding a bats for guys. And I think Ruiz at that point might either no longer be on the roster or might just be relegated to the bench uh, for the rest of the year and only get sparing playing time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, do we think I mean, I mentioned Platoon, like I would not be surprised, and I know there are are varying thoughts about Pat Valleca in this uh in this group right now, but uh I would not be surprised if for the first couple months of the season there's a Valeka Ruiz platoon at third base because is gonna, you know, mash lefties, not at the the Hanser Alberto rate, but he's shown in his career that's where his power comes from and, and that's where he succeeds. Um rio has you know obviously been a better hitter against righties in his career and you know you would usually think that rio is a huge defensive upgrade over Valleca, but when you can you know maybe put sanchez over at third and play Valleca at second during that platoon when ruiz is on the bench um you know you've got some more options there and you know the third, there's nobody really coming and pushing Rio out at third. He's almost kind of just losing the job itself, or on his own, it seems like. And, you know, if he continues to play like he is, he's really going to lose it.
2: As long as Valleco's not shortstop, I'll give him another <laughs> chance. <laughs> I mean, he, the bat really didn't impress me. I will give him that. He frustrates me to no end for whatever reason. But, um, yeah, the bat was really good. I mean, league average bat, after he had, like, a WRC Plus of, like, two, you know, two years ago in Colorado. Um, so, yeah, he's he doesn't have to play shortstop. So I'll give him a try at third base or, or second base and, and see what he does. But, if you know, Ruiz, is like you said, is just an enigma. He's really great and he's hot. And he's, you know, sending uh, balls over there to Utah Street. And then the next day, you know, he's he's cold for two, three, four weeks at a time. But, yeah, I mean, there's really no one else to take a spot right now. So we'll see how long it lasts, though.
3: That's a great point. There really is nobody that he should be looking over his shoulder at. But he he just can't grab the job and run with it.
1: Yeah, agreed. And, Bob, I know you have a couple of other position players you want to ask uh, Connor about.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, I know Ketcher's not really a position that we're going to be looking at too much when it comes to spring training for the Orioles. We pretty much know Chancisco, Pedro Severino are going to be our guys. But I was wondering who you thought out of those two is going to win the job to be ultimately Adley Rutschman's backup.
0: Yeah, it's... It's interesting because you know a lot of who Adley Rutschman's backup is. You know, for you know, there might not be a long-term backup, but a guy who takes that job for a couple years. A lot of it depends on when they call Adley up. You know, if it's if it's this year, you know, he might not exactly be the number one guy as soon as they call him up. But if it's maybe Opening Day 2022, it might be you know you're the starting catcher Opening Day. Let's do it. Uh, Which I think in the end is what they're going to do, at least in my opinion. But. You know, between the two, obviously, Cisco is the Orioles guy, you know, had been the number one catcher throughout the system. And I mean, I guess Cisco gave us the most positivity out of any season since he's come to the big leagues last year. But, you know, Nick mentioned, you know, Pat Fuleka just frustrating him to no end. I think Chance Cisco is the guy that frustrates me to no end. I mean he's got he he's got a good batter's eye at the plate. He seems like a guy who could get on base well. He's got a little bit of pop from the left side. He's not a horrendous defender, but it just, you know, every time he's out there I feel like there's something he could do better. And so if it's between the two, I'm taking Pedro Severino. I think he's a, he's a better hitter at this point. He showed that last year. You know, if if they would have done an All-Star game 30 games in, I think Pedro would have been the starting catcher. Um, in the American League last year, before he kind of you know slumped uh, down the final month of the season, um, but you know long term, I, I think they're going to be in a you know similar situation to you know Matt Weeder's, where it's just you know some free agent signings coming in every couple of years to back them up, or if they find a, a Caleb Joseph type, um, you know maybe if if a guy like one of these Taylor Davises or you know one of the younger guys turns into that job. I don't think either of them is the backup long-term, but I, I definitely give the edge to Pedro right now because maybe Cisco could figure it out, but but it's it's frustrating to watch him.
3: Austin Wins is still out there.
0: He is, but there's <laughs> something about Austin Wins and the fact that, that he did not get his shot over Brian Holiday last year really concerns me about what, uh, if any, future he has uh, with the Orioles.
2: Yeah, I think he's he's just your guy you keep around in, in AAA. Work with the younger guys. I mean, it's clearly working. But uh, yeah, I I love Pedro Severino and, and the advancements that he's made. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk last year about him being a possible trade candidate. That could still be the same this year. Although Cisco's younger, so if another team thinks there's something there uh, and the Orioles want to move him, I'm fine with that. He does. You get these you know 13, 14 percent walk rates, but then he strikes out like almost 35 percent of the time. Uh, a lot of DJ Stewart's similar numbers. The base hits aren't there, but he gets on base. And then he goes a week where you got everybody thinking, oh, Chancisco might be finally trying to break through. And then the real Chancisco Chance comes through. Um, and I don't, he's got three or four more years of control as well. And like you said, he's an Orioles guy, he's a former top prospect. So I think, at least for right now, they're going to keep him around. Uh, and If someone wants Severino, I think is a more reliable, better option. And for that reason, I think he maybe even gets moved at some point this year. Uh, But we'll see. But yeah, I I agree. Francisco, go. And and DJ Stewart, I put in the same boat as guys that are just former top prospects that you want them to break through. And they keep giving you just that little bit, just enough to suck you back in. And then they're like, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm going to go back to the end of the baseball. Um, And it's how much longer are we going to put up with that here? I don't
1: know. I'm kind of with Nick on this question. I think that if Severino produces even you know slightly below league average offensive season, that that's going to be enough for the Orioles to find a trade partner in the offseason. Um, and at that point, San Francisco would be the favorite uh, among the players that are in the organization right now. But I also wouldn't be entirely shocked if they ended up going out and getting a veteran to go behind Adley. Um, there might just be the argument there to put someone who can kind of show him the ropes a little bit, um, especially with defense and with working with pitchers. Because although Rutzman earns really high marks in those areas right now, you know that there's going to be a learning curve at the major league level. So it, it kind of a I could almost, and I, I don't have a name in mind to be honest with you, but I could see where if San Francisco doesn't earn the job with his 2021 performance, And if the Orioles find that there is a good trade market for Severino, that both of those guys are off the roster uh, by the start of 2022. And that you have a veteran who is outside the organization right now coming and back up Rutzman to basically be the player who shows him the ropes, can be the veteran presence, uh, if you will, to help him and then kind of be the steady hand to step in and work with the younger starters when Rutzman has days off. Long term, I will throw out the name Maverick Handley. If there is a Caleb Joseph to Matt Weiders that is in the system right now to be that player to Adley Rutzman, I think it's Maverick Handley. But I do wonder, depending on where you see Handley ceiling, if at some point, especially if he hits well enough at the higher levels, if he's not a guy that you're considering, and this is very long term, if he's not a guy that you're considering trading to bring you back someone to help you help you win at the majors now. But if I had to guess long term if there's a backup in the system for Rutsman, I would go Maverick Hanley. And I, I would also throw out Brett Cumberland, too, as a possibility. That first guy, but somebody the Orioles' organization seems really high on. Yeah, you know, well, Maverick Hanley's my guy.
2: Stanford graduate, co-Pac-12 defensive player of the year with Adley Rutsman in their senior years, junior years. Um, yeah, he's a guy I think is a solid, one of those guys that's probably going to end up I think realistically, he's someone that sticks around in the upper minors to kind of replaces the Austin wins uh, of the, the Orioles team now. But yeah, it's definitely someone interesting to keep an eye on in the future.
3: Those were all great, thoughtful answers, but it was a trick question. The answer is Nick Ciofo. So uh, moving on, my other last question was a guy who uh, Nick just brought up, uh, DJ Stewart. He's a guy that doesn't really, I don't think he really has a role in the team as far as I can tell right now. But he did enough last year that there's still a sliver of hope there. So what do you think the Orioles are going to do with him in 2021, Connor?
0: Uh, I mean, just start calling him the roller coaster. Because, I mean, that was just an unbelievable season. And obviously, the 60-game sample size and the fact that he spent a, a nice little chunk at the alternate site makes it you know, a very small sample size. But the fact that he didn't get a hit to turning into Barry Bonds for 10 days to then I think what people forget about DJ Stewart's season is for the last three weeks, he also didn't get a hit again, Um, and that was kind of masked by the fact that he was just uh, uh, owning Garrett Cole uh, for a weekend, but uh, man, I I mean, has a player ever had a week that literally just kept him, you know, maybe not on a roster, but but in the conversation where maybe he he otherwise shouldn't be. I mean, it feels like that's what DJ Stewart did. And if that week turns into two weeks and turns into more consistency and he can spread that out, then, yeah, he has a chance. But, I mean, I'm looking at the crunch that's going to come in the outfield pretty soon here um, with all these guys that are on the 40-man now. And, you know, if there comes down to a situation at some point this year where I feel like it might – where they're going to have to choose between Usneel Diaz and DJ Stewart, two guys who, you know, you're not sure about them in the outfield, but they've got the bat. I mean, they're going to take Usneel Diaz, I think, 10 times out of 10, as would I. Um, and I I wish DJ Stewart the best, um, but I don't think if he ever figures it out, even, it will be in an Oreo uniform.
2: Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think you always. To look at guys like change of scenery guys and will it work for some people and it doesn't work for others but I think DJ Stewart could be one of those guys just because coming through the system it, he was a slow starter throughout all his minor league career uh, but and he always gave you those flashes you know he doesn't look like a guy who's going to burn you with speed but he's got some wheels out there defensively and on the base paths um, I remember I, I was actually got the opportunity to talk with Kyle Glazer a couple of years ago when DJ Stewart was in the lower minors and Glazer was like I was just asking him kind of which guys, I think it was with Marva at the time. And I was just, who stands out to you over here at Delmarva watching these guys? And he said, it's DJ Stewart. You know, sticks out because you look at him and then he kind of blows you away a little bit with the speed. You're not expecting it. Uh, and, and so you, you got the power there as well. But the defensive miscues just keep adding up. And, and like you said, that outfield crunch, outfield's a depth on this team. So, you've got Mount Castle uh, right now, who it doesn't seem like the Orioles are going to move to first base anytime soon. Uh, you know, Chris Davis has got that job locked down for the next three years still. Um, it, Santander, even if Santander is traded, uh, then you still got, like you said, Diaz, you still got McKenna's on the 40 man roster. Uh, you've got a good group of outfielders coming up through the system. So, I, I don't know how much longer he's got, but like you said, it's, I don't know. I personally think he's going to stick around longer than he should. I think he's going to struggle, uh, and
1: but the Orioles aren't going to really have a way to move him yet. So I, I don't know, but we'll see. I give Stewart a solid two months in the majors because my expectation is that we will probably be June before the, at the earliest we see Diaz. Just because of the fact that he is someone who has struggled with injuries before. <laughs> Um, So I think you want to make sure that he's healthy and producing a triple A before you commit to making him an everyday corner outfielder, which if Santander is not moved, you're probably looking at Diaz and left. Um, And regardless of where you put Diaz on the field, though, someone's going to lose at bats. And if Stort does not find a way to be more consistent, he's probably going to be the guy that's dropped, especially if Trey Mancini is healthy. And I know that that's sort of still the big question is what can we expect from Mancini? But if Mancini is hitting at even a fraction of what he did in 2019, and he's in the lineup every day, you're not going to pull him out. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle, I I think, is going to be in the running for American League Rookie of the Year next year. I I don't see him losing at bats. And I think as long as he's healthy, Austin Hayes is going to be given the opportunity to sink or swim, so to speak, in center field. So I really expect that it's going to be when Diaz comes up, unless Stewart is doing what DJ Stewart does at his best, which is hitting, you know, probably about 260, but drawing a lot of walks, getting a high on base percentage, and showing a little bit of power. I think it's going to be hard to justify keeping him in the lineup. The only way that I think it would happen is if the Orioles just decided at that point to commit to making DJ Stewart, um, Part-time DH, outfielder, move him in and out as needed. um, And then basically just put Chris Davis on the bench, which is something that Brandon Hyde has not shown a hesitation to do in the past. So I think he would do it again if he had to. But I don't know how confident I am in Stewart hitting well enough over the first two or three months of the year to keep his bat in the lineup when the time does come for Diaz to be promoted. And then I would throw two other names out there, too. That could be in that first base DH outfield mix. And that's Tyler Nevin and Chris Shaw. Shaw has struggled to produce when in his time in the major leagues, which has come in San Francisco, but he has generally hit well at triple A. And I think if he gets off to a good start, the Orioles might be looking at him, especially because that is another bat from the left side. And then Nevin, you know, we talked about this um, a couple episodes ago. Tyler Nevin's not the most exciting prospect for various reasons. But you know when he's healthy, he's going to draw a lot of walks. He's going to hit for a decent average. And if we start to see the power come around in Norfolk a little bit, I think it's going to be hard to leave him in AAA all year if there is an opening. And as Stewart is struggling, that's your opening to give a guy like Tyler Nevin a look.
3: All good points, yeah. I wonder if you could see DJ Stewart start the year as like a DH against right-handed pitchers while... Mancini's at first base and then you play Mancini at DH against lefties and have Stewart on the bench to back up the outfield or maybe, maybe even give him a chance to learn a little bit of first base and now that we know the season's going to start on time maybe this is when they finally cut Chris Davis at some point in spring training or at least hopefully at some point during the year but that's probably a pipe dream.
0: Yeah I, th- I think Chris Davis at, at this point he's still on the roster he's going to be there and and it's like you have these kind of conversations, and you just have to bring Chris up every time because he's there's 26 spots, and he's going to have one of them. And, the Orioles still have a
3: 25 man roster, yeah,
0: and and that, that essentially they're playing from behind. Uh, and he's not just going to sit. I mean, obviously, as Zach said, Brandon Hyde has shown that he will sit him, but he's not going to sit sit. Like he's going to get on the field. He's going to be in the lineup a couple days a week. You know, he's going to he's put him in as a defensive replacement at first like he did a couple times last year which i just found hilarious um not that he's bad at first just the fact that that was how they were getting chris davis into the games um but i mean he's gonna have to play at some point and i i mean dj stewart might be the guy directly hurt the most by that because i mean even though mancini and mountcastle are more so at davis's position you you are not gonna have them lose at bats to chris davis and so Stewart is going to be the guy that loses those at bats. And I do think there is a scenario where like there's a Mike Stremski 2.0 if Stewart goes somewhere else and things click, but I- I'm willing to take that risk from what we've seen from him in an Oriole uniform.
2: Yeah. it's been what three years now with Stewart and Cisco and it's just, yeah, they, they, they pull you back in at just the right time. And so you don't want to give up on them. And all the tools are there. We know all the tools are there. We've seen them. But yeah, it's how much longer are they going to be able to? to hang on to a roster spot and it's it's good though it's a good thing that we're talking about a guy like DJ Stewart who I think all of us do see that potential still and want to see him succeed but at the same time you know we're looking at two three other guys coming up in the pipeline very soon that you say yeah we definitely like them a lot better Um, so you know we're we're slowly getting to a much better place as Orioles fans but I'm not getting rebuild fatigue uh, like I think a lot of people are but when it comes to the guys like Cisco and Stewart uh, they are starting to
1: to wear me down a little bit. So, Nick, I know you wanted to bring up the bullpen, and I have um, a question or two for Connor as well, but you had a good one for me that I definitely want to make sure we uh, talked about.
2: Yeah, I just wanted y'all's opinion, we're all here, uh, on Hunter Harvey at this point. You know, a um, guy that's been around, another guy you feel like should be like 35 years old, but he's only in you know his mid-20s. Um, I'm finding myself, heck, like, having a hard time getting excited about Harvey this season Uh, just because you know we saw like the fastball velocity was down the curveball just wasn't missing bats really none of his pitches were missing bats last year and we're talking about small number of innings again but it's been the same story for the last two years when he's come up it's injuries uh, even in his rookie year, uh, if it was just you know soreness and they could have pitched through it but they decided to shut him down early because you know he's got a a, a mile long list of injuries but it, it's still been the same story now he's reached up to the major leagues and I just feel like if you're relying on him to come out in the ninth inning or eighth inning and throw 98 99 mile an hour fastballs with that injury history and that's his bread and butter um, you know I feel like there's a lot of risk there and, and so i don't I don't know if Are we going with Hunter Harvey in the ninth inning? Is that something to look forward to? Are we excited about that still? Are we just going Cesar Valdez in the ninth, the eighth and ninth even final five outs to close things out uh, and then see what some of these younger guys have coming up. But I just, I don't know. What are y'all's thoughts about Hunter Harvey at this point in his career?
0: I mean, I got to say at this point, I'm going to let Cesar Valdez and the dead fish go until it stops working. Um, To be honest, you take some pressure off the younger relievers and you say, listen, we got this 35-year-old guy. He's going to throw it 74 miles an hour, and you guys can figure it out in the 6th, 7th, and 8th until that stops working, which obviously at some point in 2021, it's probably going to stop working, um, but I would let him roll with it until it does. But for Hunter Harvey, I kind of have a little Hunter Harvey fatigue, to be honest, and I've cultivated a bit of a take this off season that is kind a little bit outlandish, um, but there's a little bit of truth to it in that how much different at this point is Hunter Harvey than Cody Sedlock? Like, I know that's that's pretty outlandish because Harvey obviously has a much higher ceiling and he's been in the big leagues, um, but, you know, it, it kind of has the same feelings, just the difference is Cody hasn't made it to the bigs um, yet. And, you know, Harvey's been up for a couple of years, but what is it, like 20 innings I think that he's thrown in the big league level because... You know, he didn't get much time in 19, and then, you know, they shut him down at the beginning of last year. And to be honest, he when he pitched last year, he was not as impressive as he was in 2019. Um, he got hit harder um, than he did, you know, those first couple games that he pitched in. And when I kind of project out, not the bullpen for this year, because I feel like Hunter Harvey's going to be wherever he is, a part of the 2021 bullpen but when I project out the bullpen for the next couple of years, with the arms that they've now added to the forty man, and you know, you know who of these guys will be relievers, you know, I think there's a possibility of a even a guy like Keegan Aiken maybe moving to the bullpen, or or if it doesn't exactly all come together for Bauman, that maybe he's a reliever. Um, I start to look at all these guys, and you know, the Tanner Scotts of the world being in there, and and you know, they might not have Sean Armstrong in a couple of years, but they'll have Sean Armstrong types that they bring in, you know, to be fifth, sixth inning guys. I'm kind of starting to fulfill, you know, like the 2023 bullpen just without Hunter Harvey in it for the Orioles. And to me at this point, it's almost like if he does turn into what he could be, it's just like an extra bonus at this point because it's just been so many injuries. We've just, he's been sitting on the sideline for so long. And, you know, I, I don't want to move past him because we basically have no sample size still yet at the major league level. But it, it's kind of getting there for me.
3: Well, I could tell you the difference between Hunter Harvey and Cody Sidlock is a couple miles per hour on the fastball and a, a head of hair. But uh, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I don't know if Hunter Harvey will ever be as good or as electric as he looked at the end of 2019 in his, the rest of his career. I'm not going to say that it's impossible that he couldn't rebound, stay healthy, and give you 58 solid innings out of the bullpen, seventh, eighth inning. I don't think he, I'm kind of over him ever being like the full-blown closer at this point. But yeah, I kind of agree as the all of our starting pitcher prospects kind of start to settle down further down the line into the bullpen, find their roles. What is Hunter Harbor going to be? I don't know. It's kind of tricky. It's I'm kind of half have fatigue of him and half like I just want to see him pitch for an extended period of time.
1: I want to give Harvey the benefit of the doubt and say that given how unusual 2020 was, and I think it was particularly unusual for him because he went from probably being the favorite in the first spring training to be the closer when the year started, to coming into summer camp, then he starts the season on the injured list, then comes back and has to pitch under these kind of odd circumstances as Nick said, definitely did not look as sharp as he has at his best in the past. And part of me kind of wants to say, okay, maybe he's a guy that we just need to write off 2020 and just first and foremost hope that he can get through a full season. My concern more for him at this point, though, is just that I think the bullpen as a whole getting better over the long run could hurt him. Because you see the step forward that Tanner Scott took last year. Um, I would not be surprised at all, not only if Scott is the best reliever the Orioles have next year, but if by the end of the year, he's a closer. Um, Dylan Tate looked really good when he was healthy, and I'm excited to see what he could do. And, you know, for as much as I was kind of calling early in the offseason saying, Cole Saucer's got to be the guy that the Orioles move on from in that bullpen, if the foot issue that he had really did throw off his mechanics, it could explain why um, as the season progressed, it seemed like he had lost the ability to command his pitches. So I would even give him a trial run again this year to see what he has to offer. So I, I just I question if Harvey could end up not necessarily within twenty twenty one, but if he can't get healthy or if he's just not effective when he is healthy, if the Orioles are going to realise our bullpen is getting a lot better now, we don't need to necessarily hold on to the hope that Hunter Harvey's going to be healthy. And figure it out, and he's going to deliver this really promising return because we have three or four other pitchers that can do the exact same thing and do it with more consistency.
2: We got Paul Fry
1: too. Yeah, that's a good. Fry had a really good year last year, so that that's another good reliever you can throw in the mix. So, Connor, I will throw this out. There was some discussion, I think, earlier in the offseason. I saw it a lot on our message board at Baltimore Sports and Life. Kind of the speculation over whether or not the Orioles would or should go out and get a more proven reliever to be the closer at least for part of the year and then maybe becomes a trade tip at the trade deadline if the younger pitchers are going behind him. The free agent market's been slow this offseason. So do you think there's still a possibility we see a veteran reliever added to the mix? Or do you think, as you said, you're going to go with Cesar Valdez and just have that one pitch work its magic for as long as it can?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, we know the Orioles weren't, if they were going to make a move like that, it was never going to be for those top flight guys. You know, the the big money Liam Hendricks, the Blake Trinans, the Brad Hands, you know, even the Kirby Yates kind of guys. Um, but there there's that second, you know, line of guys and, and actually a guy that signed yesterday I thought the Orioles may have been interested in in Sean Doolittle. Um just a guy who has been around, has won a World Series, you know, obviously played in DC, um, is a fantastic guy to have in your clubhouse. Um and I think could teach a lot to a guy like Tanner Scott. Um, you know, two lefties who rely on that fastball, obviously with different velocities, but um obviously he got scooped up by the Reds. Um, at this point, just kind of looking through, you know, who's still out there. I mean, the the crop of guys who would be cheap veterans who have closing experience is basically gone at this point. And so, you know, maybe they do bring in a, a veteran guy on a minor league deal or or, or a cheap major league deal um, who has, you know, been around different bullpens before to to come in and just be a veteran presence. But at this point, you know, again, not that Cesar Valdez, I think is going to have a one ERA this year, but I would throw that thing out there until it stops working. And it gives Hunter Harvey and Tanner Scott, and I am a huge Dylan Tate fan. It gives all those guys a chance. And you still have Paul Fry and Sean Armstrong, who I, I think both looked pretty good at times in 2020. You put that all together with the fact that you have more than five starters who are, probably ready to go in the major leagues and a couple of those guys might be in the bullpen. You know, I think that the bullpen was the biggest pleasant surprise for the Orioles in 2020 and I would just run I would run it back with the additions of, you know, maybe a couple of young guys who were added to the 40-man, you know, maybe and an Isaac Matson I think might have a shot to to make this opening day a roster. I run it back with those guys. You know, I mentioned, you know, Doolittle might have been a guy I would have taken a chance on, or like a, a Greg Holland, you know, I might have taken a chance on a a, a cheap closer like that, um, to try to kind of try to resurrect themselves um in, in on a rebuilding team. But at this point in the offseason with of those guys gone, I just run it back with a with a bullpen that was solid last year.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean I, they already signed Fernando Abad to Uh, minor league deal so i guess i think that's going to be like the only thing they really do as far as the bullpen i think you might see them get another starter or two in a minor league deal but i mean connor nailed it we that was the best part of our team last year i felt like we were pretty deep there everyone was mostly effective you still got lakens who was okay last year saucer who could be come back if he's healthy you got the two rule five guys and sarola and tyler wells isaac mattson and a couple other minor league signings like spencer watkins uh who could, you know, show up, help out at some point in time, and even some of the guys they took in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, I think, have some potential. So, yeah, I think you just you run it back, like Connor said.
2: Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, really nothing else to add to that. The bullpen was great last year. It was really solid. Uh, even after Michael Gibbons is gone, Miguel Castro is gone, and to get what the Orioles got back from those guys, it shows you some more of how well this bullpen developed last year so. I'm glad, I'm happy with where that bullpen's at and more excited to see kind of who else, do do the Orioles bring in anybody else uh, to like a minor league deal uh, to try to work as maybe that long man role or or are we rolling with the guys that we have now? Uh, But I think as far as like late inning guys, short relief guys, I think
1: the Orioles are pretty solid there. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I think that they can go in with what they have. If a guy like Fernando, a bad sticks, great. See what he can give you. And, you know, I I think that there's also a little bit of potential to see some of the players that took steps forward last year improve. Um, Dylan Tate, you want to see him healthy, but I think that if he can get through a full season, he's going to deliver really good numbers. Tanner Scott took some big steps forward last year, which I was really happy to see. But I think particularly with walks, there's still room for him to improve a little bit and cut those back um, even further. So I I'm fine with not having you know brought in a guy that's gonna come in and I think Connor brought up some good names with Sean Doolittle and Greg Holland and I would not have minded the see the Orioles go in that direction but I'm also okay with them not doing that but um I think it was Bob who brought up the Rule Five picks in Max Aroller and Tyler Wells we talked about them a little bit in our last show Connor um because both of them fell short of our top 30 list, although Bob had Wells on his personal top 30. Um, And one of the things that we kind of discussed for a little bit was, do you think that they have any shot at making the opening day roster? So I want to ask you that. Do you think that we see Wells or Sarola on the roster? Is there room for both? Or is it a repeat of last year and the Orioles send both of them back to their former clubs during spring training?
0: Yeah, and in listening to you guys and the episode from last week, I kind of agreed with the the sentiments on both of them. I, I can't remember who said, uh, but I kind of laughed uh, at you know saying maybe Soroler just sticks around because Ben McDonald gets in somebody's ear and says, "Hey, this guy better make the team." Um, but I also agreed with kind of the sentiment last week with you guys that was I think Tyler Wells is the more intriguing pitcher of the two. Um, I mean, anytime a guy is six foot eight on the mound, I'm just like instantly intrigued. Um, and then, you know, from kind of talking with, you know, I talked with some some people who saw both of them pitch uh, for my podcast. And basically we talking with them. It was like, yeah, maybe, you know, Soroller, be, he was the first round guy. Like maybe he's more ready right now if you had to pick between the two of them. But the consensus seemed to be like, you know, Wells was kind of a, a value pick, you know, coming off of Tommy John. But having, you know, 2019 wiped out and then, you know, all of 2020 wiped out. I think he was a, he's a huge question mark right now, um, and I think if one of the two makes it, um, it will be Wells. But I really would not be surprised um, if we saw the same thing as last year. Um, I was a little bit excited by Brandon Bailey last year. Then he got his shot with the uh, Astros, and it it wasn't you know he, he put up some okay numbers, but they moved on from him, and they were looking for pitching last year, so that says a lot about him. Um, and so I think we could see the same thing, but uh, if it's one of them. Um, I like Wells, you know, coming off of, of basically two years off and just resetting everything. And I think that's why he was available because he wasn't being protected because he hadn't pitched in, in two years. And, you know, teams have 40 man roster crunches. Um, but I definitely don't see both of them sticking on the 40 man with the bullpen the Orioles already have and the starters they've added the 40 man. But, you know, I could see Mike Elias saying, you know what, let's give Wells a shot and, and see what he's what he's got and if it's not there and and he's not the same after the Tommy John then you know it's a it's a rule 5 pick and then you return him
2: yeah, Cool. Uh do we want to wrap it up with some of the, these last two questions we had here? Any more questions about the bullpen?
1: Yeah, I I yeah. think that's it. So, I will cuz I know Nick has a really good question that I want to end the show on. So, I'll just throw this out. Um, there has been reports in, over the last couple of weeks of teams potentially being interested in trading for Anthony Santander and Trey Mancini. I believe the Marlins were a name that was thrown around for Santander. In the case of Trey Mancini, it's been the Braves, which I've been a little confused by that fit, but it's the you know the team's name is out there right now, and we do know that Alex Anthopoulos is aggressive with trades, so it's definitely something worth watching. Um, Connor, I'll start with you. Do you think, first off, that either of them are traded before opening day? And if they're not, do you think that they play out the full 2021 season in Baltimore or that one or both of them has moved?
0: So I was in full crisis mode when those rumors came across because, I mean, on one hand, Santander is your, you know, probably – for a singular player, your, your biggest plus out of out of 2020, even though he got injured. And for Mancini, he's the star of your team. He, he might be the face of your team at this point. And to be honest, there's nothing I want more than for him to return to the field in an Oriole uniform on opening day. So a little bit of sentiment there as well. I will say, I talked about this on my podcast on Monday. If it really is a money thing, the Orioles did just save, you know, with deferred money and, you know, what the Angels are eating for Alex Cobb. They probably saved about $7 million uh, for 2021. After Santander's arbitration hearing, which was today, him and Mancini will combine to be paid about $7 million this year. So if it was really about money, the Cobb deal might have just solved that problem that the Orioles are saying they have. Um, And so from that stretch, I don't think they're traded. And I think both of them play out this year. I don't know if either of them ends up with an extension when that time comes around years down the road, but I think I think it, it's also me hoping that's the case. But I really do think both of them play out twenty twenty one as an Oriole.
1: Bob and Nick, any thoughts? Yeah,
3: I think yeah, I think Anthony Santan there is a pretty good sell high candidate right now because I don't know if. What he did in 2020 is sustainable. I mean, he did it over 30 some, 40 games. Um, looked great for sure. And especially defensively, seemed to improve a lot from the year before. But I don't know. I think those numbers might come back down to earth. So if someone wants to, like the Marlins, if they want to give up a Dax Fulton and then a couple other young guys for him, I think I would do it. But I'll say if he's not traded by opening day, then he'll be here all season. I have a theory about the Mancini thing. I think maybe there are just floating that his name out there now to just get fans mentally prepared that he might be traded by the trade deadline in the middle of the year but like like Connor said I want to see him have his his uh season debut in Oriole uniform and eventually with some fans in the stands hopefully that would be great so yeah I I don't know I think one of them will be gone by the end of 2021
2: yeah, I'm, I'm shedding a tear, I'm not afraid to say it, when I see Trey Mancini run out in that orange carpet on opening day. I mean, that's going to be huge. Um, you know, I don't even want to think about the Orioles trading him. I have accepted the fact that it probably will happen. Uh, and if it does, you know, I hope he, the best for him. I hope nothing but the best. A World Series in his future, whether it's with the Orioles or not. When the Braves come up, you know, I, I have a lot of good friends that are hardcore, diehard Braves fans. And, you know, they just... The way they did not appreciate Nick Markakis really just always irked me. So I hope Macy doesn't go to the Braves just because they, they didn't appreciate our guys enough. But um, with Santander, yeah, I, I love him. I don't want to see him go either, but I'm also fine if they want to sell high on him. Just because, you know, we haven't seen what Santander has been able to do across the full season yet. I think he's going to be really good, but he's only played in, a thir- in his four years. He's got 13 games, 33 games, 93 games, and 37 games in his four seasons. So. A two ninety two career on base percentage and a ninety seven WRC+. plus, So, I mean, he's, he's average right now. And he does have those spurts, though, where he really showed out. And he's a guy who's probably going to be a 20 home run, 20 double guy across the full season. Um, but it's just, can he be consistent? That's been my biggest thing with Santander. Um, the defense was definitely much improved last year. Uh, Gold glove finalists, you know, is that going to carry out across 162 games? I don't know, but, I mean, yeah. That's going to be a tricky one, but I do like that, that money theory, that if this is about comes down to the money and they got it with the ox Cobb deal, then I think we're good for at least another year, and these guys end up finishing the year in an Orioles uniform.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that they're both going to end the year uh, with the Orioles. I, Like Nick said, I really don't want to see Mancini move, but I'm kind of mentally preparing myself for the day that that could or will happen. Santander's case, I still want to see what he does at least over the first half. Because I think that if he comes back and he hits close to what he did last year, and you see that gold glove caliber defense again, his trade value will be even higher. Um, and it might be to the point where the Orioles can really set the market for him and decide you know, whether they want to move him at the deadline or wait until the offseason and see if they can work out an extension or move him then. And I think, as we saw in Michael Givens, too, um, there are ways to kind of extend that window a little bit with uh, trade value, and that could be the case with Santander. So, Nick, I'm going to throw it to you now for the final question of this mm-hmm. show, because it's a good one.
2: Yeah, let's uh, combine these. I think uh, we'll go on a high note to end this show now, um, after talking about Trey Mancini and Santander trade talk. Um Looking ahead, twenty twenty one. Combine these two that I had. Kind of, what's what's the one storyline or one player that you're really excited to watch play in twenty twenty one, and one bold prediction. It can be it can be out there, but it's got to be somewhat set and realistic. Um, a little bit of realism here, at least. But yeah, one storyline or player that you're most excited for in twenty twenty one, and a way too early bold prediction for next season from each of you guys. So. I'll give you a, uh, I guess the cop-out
0: answer is, I mean, as you said, like Trey Mancini just running down the orange carpet like that. Yeah. I might shed a tear as well. Um, but to be honest, like it did feel like, even though this wasn't the case. It felt like the Orioles fans kind of bullied the Orioles into finally calling up Ryan Mountcastle last year. And I don't remember a time where like that kind of happened. And then it also just completely worked out. Like he was phenomenal. And as Zach said, I think he's going to be a finalist at least for AL Rookie of the Year next year and like it feels like the Orioles fans have at least rallied around Mountcastle to know like he's going to be here for a while before we have to shudder into the dark time of thinking will they trade him and he's really good already and that is the one player I'm most excited to to watch play because Um, He seems like he's got it all pretty together at the plate. He looked like he got better and better every day in left field, if that is where he's going to play. And I just cannot wait to watch him play next season, because I think he's going to be a middle of the order hitter for the Orioles, hopefully for a long time. Um, And it's a guy who hit through the minors, and he's hitting in the majors, and it would be just fantastic if he lives up to those expectations. But for a bold prediction for the Orioles, um, you know, it's – It's hard to get too bold because, you know, they're just going to be a losing team kind of no matter what happens. Like, even if they go on a stretch like they did early last year, like it's a 162 game season. Like it's it's going to fall apart at some point, just as it did last year um, with the roster they have. Um, But I think my bold prediction uh, for next year is that, you know, I think the Orioles are going to learn a lot about all these young pitchers next year. But I think I'm I'm going to go on a positive note, and I think by the end of 2021, the Orioles are going to have some incredibly hard starting pitching decisions to make, because I think John Means is going to come out there and put together something close to what he did at the end of the season. I think Dean Kramer's for real. I think Keegan Aiken might be something, and I think all these guys that were added to the 40-man are going to give them something to think about at the major league level, And with Grayson and D.L. Hall coming, I think my bull prediction is by the end of the year, the Orioles are going to have more than five serviceable starting pitchers, maybe not at the moment, but guys that they've seen that they can do it at the major league level. And I think this could be a really interesting conversation we're having a year from now.
3: Very good. Very good. Uh, the guy I'm most looking forward to watching this year is going to be Dean Kramer out of the starting rotation, especially now with Alex Cobb traded. He's definitely paved a way to be maybe even the number two starter on this team, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I saw a tweet from Alex Fast on uh, Twitter. He's at Alex Fast 8. He tweeted out the best four seamers by put away rate, which Not exactly sure what that means, but just from the company that Kramer finds himself in, he was number two with 30.3. Only you, Darvish was ahead of him. Other guys in that top 10 are like Trevor Bauer, Jake DeGrom, Freddie Montas, uh, Shane Bieber, Maeda, Woodruff, Nola. So he's up there with some good company and obviously it's short sample size, but I feel like he might be a pretty uh, good breakout candidate uh, to go on the pitching side with Ryan Mountcastle on the hitting side and for my bold prediction i'll say by the end of 2021 the orioles will have the third or fourth best system in the all of baseball uh prospect system and rio ruiz not going to make the team out opening day since i already kind of threw that one out there oh i think you're muted zach
1: So I think if I had to look across the board at a guy that I'm really excited to see, Um, Bob kind of touched on Dean Kramer a little bit. Connor was Ryan Malcastle, Both of those guys are really exciting. For me, though, I I think it's going to be Santander. I, I just want to see what we get from him over a full season because there were stretches in 2019 where he looked like a really good player. And I think he will benefit over a full season from having an entrenched spot in the outfield. He's not going to be moving around the way he did in 2019. He's the everyday right fielder. That's it. Um, I think the bat, if nothing else, plays well at Candom yards with his power. I was really surprised and hopeful with the improvements we saw defensively. So I, I just want to see if what he can do over a full season. And for my bold prediction, I'm going to go one spot over in the outfield and predict that This is the year that Austin Hayes emerges, and I know we've kind of talked about this a lot over the last few years, but even if Cedric Mullins gets a good chunk of part-time playing time in center field, um, I think Austin Hayes is going to hold down the job, he's going to be healthy, he's going to put together um, 275, 280 average, somewhere in there, he's going to hit for a little bit more power than we've seen in the past, Uh, because based off of what I saw at the end of last year, I liked what I... I thought he hit well, and I think if the Orioles just decide now that he is not a leadoff hitter, don't put him back in that spot, hit him a little bit lower in the order like they did when he came off the injured list late in the year, that they're going to get good results for him. So I'm going to predict good things for Austin Hayes as my bold prediction for 2021.
2: Yeah, that that slides right into the storyline that I'm most anxious to watch is Austin Hayes, Uh, just because I want to see him finally stay healthy. Uh, he is so, so electric defensively that I want to see him stick and I want to see him stay healthy and have that bat be a more consistent bat in the lineup. I agree. I don't, he's not a leadoff hitter. That's where the Orioles have been putting him. I don't know if it's just to get more at bats uh, throughout the season and see where he fits into a lineup better, maybe later on, but putting him into a position to succeed. I think the Orioles are now in a better position to do that themselves. So we'll see. I hope he stays healthy. He's a new dad. Maybe he's got some new dad superpowers that are going to kick in this year. And I I hope he succeeds just because this outfield is so exciting, and especially the guys coming up through the system. Uh, I made a note just kind of to keep it prospect-focused a little bit as well. The Norfolk starting rotation, if you're going to have guys like D.L. Hall, Zach Lauter, Michael Bauman, Alexander Wells... Even a Kevin Smith, who you know we mentioned, you know, Dan Zimborski says Kevin Smith is going to be the top Orioles pitcher next year. Um, that's going to be a really exciting rotation to watch and an exciting team to watch uh, as well. But my bold prediction, I know we said we're going to keep it like light and, and fun, but actually my bold prediction to end this is uh, I'm going to go a different route and say that uh, it's a trade. I'm going to say Tanner Scott gets traded this year. And I know a lot of Orioles fans are like, yes, do it. When the Orioles were, were trading so many bullpen arms last year, and I've seen a lot of Orioles fans are like absolutely not. Um, we, we've invested a lot of time and energy into Tanner Scott's development, so uh, I don't. I feel like if you what we saw the Orioles get from Miguel Castro and Michael Givens, I think if teams get desperate at the trade deadline and Tanner Scott pitches as well as he did last year, which was really good, um, I think Michael Elias gets an offer he can't refuse it there. So that's my bold prediction.
3: Hmm. That is interesting. I mean, to me, it seems like Elias knows he's kind of like the poker player who's holding, 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 and then trades at the last minute and gets more than you would ever expect. But I wouldn't be completely surprised either.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't either. I I, I suspect, and we'll probably get on this on our own on a separate show, I suspect that Paul Fry might be the reliever that's moved this year. But like Nick said, I would not be shocked at all if Tanner Scott gets moved just because there could be an offer out there that Mike Elias can't refuse. So, Connor, before we wrap up, just uh, take a minute here and tell us what you have coming up on Locked on Orioles and uh, what uh, our listeners should look for, both on the podcast and on your Twitter account.
0: Yes, yeah, so over at uh, Locked on Orioles, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we are three days a week uh, at this point, but as the season gets closer, uh, around March, we will go back to five days a week. So. If you're looking for Orioles content every uh, weekday, you can head over to Locked On Orioles. Uh, our next episode, uh, actually today, we had Taylor Blake Ward on, kind of breaking down Jemai Jones and what he could bring to the Orioles. It was a pretty good conversation. And then Friday, uh, Jordan Schusterman of Cespedes Family Barbecue is going to be on the pod. We're going to talk about Wade LeBlanc and Felix Hernandez and kind of their career at with the Mariners and and uh, now you know them obviously coming to the Orioles. And uh, a lot coming up. Uh, Zach, you're coming on the pod. For an episode that'll come out next week about some, uh, you know, non-top ten prospects that we're kind of excited about for this year, and uh, you know, we even look into the the other minor league signings that the Orioles have made. The guys like the Spencer Watsons and others we'll be talking about coming up. And then uh, over at the Twitter account, uh, I've got a thread going right now of uh, old full at bats from the '80s and '90s. A lot of Mike Mussina, a lot of Ben McDonald. Um, a lot of the, the good relievers they had, uh, facing off against kind of hall of fame caliber hitters, uh, that I found on YouTube. Uh, and you know, it's things like Mussina versus Jim Tomey. Um, I had Lee Smith versus Pudge Rodriguez the other night. Um, just some, uh, some full at bats for a little nostalgia here in the off season at, uh, at locked on Orioles on Twitter, but, uh, a lot of Orioles content going on here in the off season.
1: Well, Connor, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, For our listeners, be sure to uh, follow Connor on Twitter. And then check us out on Twitter, too, at BSL on the Verge. Nick has been uh, running that account pretty consistently uh, and doing a great job of it. We're also on Instagram with the same handle, so check us out there. Uh, We'll be back next week with a new show. Be sure to follow our social media for more details. And in the meantime, visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for your coverage on Orioles, Ravens, Terps, and more. And be sure to hop on the message board to join the discussion. Uh, For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this has been Zach Sveddon, and this is On the Verge.